Good to see you all. Happy uh, Time Change Sunday. It's good to be together. Hey, I just wanted to say a couple things before we uh, jump in. One is, I know there's a lot of emphasis. Is today International Women's Day? Is today the day? Yes. So we just wanted to take a moment uh, just publicly and just say how thankful we are uh, just for the ladies in our community. And we're just a church, obviously, that values and puts a high value on womanhood and the role of women in the church. And so we're just so thankful for you guys. This community would not function um, if it wasn't for the lady population. And it's more than just kids and youth. Right now, it's primarily, it's like 99% uh, women leading right now this morning, even in kids and youth and across the board. But all, all sorts of areas within our church, we're very thankful for the le- uh, ladies that lead and give your lives. So thank you, and uh, just really excited that today could be a day to put emphasis on that. And I think the church should rally in many ways behind that as a community that Jesus, way ahead of his time, was so, and really subverted Converting his time in the Gospels and placing value on womanhood. Um, Somebody said to me a little while ago that all you got to do is read the book of Luke. Somebody said this a few years to me, uh, a few years ago to me. Just read the book of Luke in light of what Jesus does with women. And I just encourage you, I think it takes uh, an hour and a half in one sitting. But you just read through it and you're like, oh my goodness, Uh, what the Messiah was doing is incredible. So we love you guys. Thank you for being a part of this and all that God's doing. The other thing is we're in a season of Lent right now. So one of the things that we're doing um, this year from Advent all the way to Pentecost Sunday at the end of May is we're taking some time to walk through the liturgical church calendar. And if you know, that starts with Advent and then Christmas and then Christmas is actually 12 days. Then you jump in after Christmas to Epiphany, the season where Jesus shows up to Gentile people like us. And now we're kind of transitioning now into the season of Lent, which is a 40-day period in preparation for Easter. And so we're just really really taking this seriously and observing the calendar just once as a community. I know we're pretty low church, but I think there's some really good things that have come from just taking time to observe these seasons. And Lent is an interesting season because it is quite a somber observance of the season as we prepare our hearts. And there's a lot of things that come around this season, including fasting and abstaining. So some of you guys right now are abstaining, you're taking 40 days to abstain from stuff. Some of you are abstaining from sugar. For people abstaining from coffee, oh, you're amazing. Extra props to you if you're doing coffee. And there's other things along the way that people are just kind of giving up and abstaining. One of the things we do every season as a community is we practice the spiritual disciplines together. And so this season of Lent, we actually really encourage you to join us in fasting. Now, we don't have a ton of time for this, but there's actually a difference between abstaining and fasting. A lot of people abstain during Lent because they pick something, whether it's Facebook or coffee or sugar or whatever. Um, But fasting is more tied to food and water over extended periods of time. Fasting has always been connected to food and water. And so one of the things we're doing right now, and this discipline has radically shaped and changed my life, like to the core. I am not good at a lot of the spiritual disciplines, and I've had my own struggles in practicing some of these things. But as I entered into this idea of fasting, it has revolutionized my life. And so we're encouraging you once a week over Lent, if you want to join us, to fast food and water from sundown one evening to sundown the next. And this was actually the fixed hour. If you read about the early church, a couple times a week, they had fixed hours of fasting. Just like prayer, these things don't 
can I just let you know, these things don't just happen. Um, I heard somebody say, we don't just wake up and all of a sudden be transformed by Jesus. It actually takes practicing his way. And uh, these things won't just happen unless there's actually fixed hours. I've learned in my own life. And so I encourage you to do it. But the other thing we did is we, did a, we produced last year a little midweek podcast called The Fasting Series. I think we have a picture of it. And I took some time, about seven weeks, to introduce this discipline, uh, why the early Christians did this, what is it biblically, like how is it rooted from the Old Testament, why do people do this, and then we talk about a number of reasons why, in a world of access, I don't know if you know this, you have food and water at your fingertips, why would we do something as crazy as abstain from food and water over periods of time? It just seems nuts. I know the world outside, I mean, it seems nuts to a lot of Christians, but think about the world outside. Why do we do this? I'll give you a little hint. I grew up in a great church, great environment, but often we started the year fasting and we fasted to get stuff. Anybody grow up in churches like that? We do 21 days because we want to get stuff from God. And in my renewal around this practice, I've just realized that's not why people have practiced this. It's not a give and get kind of discipline. There's actually better and deeper things than, hey, I just want like God to be a slot machine for me and kind of fulfill all my dreams. And even the church's dreams, we kind of do this. And so there's some really deep and profound things around fasting that if you want to engage, uh, we encourage you to do that. Just go to mypractice.church slash spiritual dash practice. It's all there. There's a tab on the website and it's good. But I'm excited about this season as we get ready for Easter. And, it, and Easter here is going to be great. We're going to have baptisms and just a great party here on Resurrection Sunday. It's going to be fantastic. But let's do this. It's a little out of the ordinary. You're doing all right. You're quiet. I know an hour or less of sleep. It's all good. You're here. Um, there's coffee downstairs, by the way, if you need to get one after. And it's really good, really good coffee. But here's what I want you to do. This is out of the ordinary. Um, just take a minute maybe a minute and a half, 90 seconds or so, and let's uh, just chat with somebody around you, maybe one or two people around this question. Can you throw it up, Pat? Just this question, it's this. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean? This is like, we hear this term a lot in especially the Christian world. What does it mean to be born again? Just take a second. It's going to be awkward if you don't talk, so make sure you talk to somebody around you. What does it mean to be born again? What does this mean? Go for it. Take a second. What does it mean to be born again? Cool. It's, uh, it's an odd phrase, isn't it? Like, can we just get a little real? This idea, especially in the English, in the English context, is very, very, it's just an odd kind of phrase. Now, you guys know, if you, if, maybe you don't, but this word, I feel like in our particular moment, has all sorts of connotations right now especially for a lot of people on the outside of the church to things like power and partisan politics, this idea of being born again, especially not as much in our context maybe in Canada, but definitely with our brothers and sisters to the south. I had a friend, and this guy, he knows what I do. He knows I'm a pastor. He knows I love Jesus and follow him with my entire life. And a few years ago, he said to me, I don't want anything to do with those born-again folk. And it was just interesting because it kind of messed me up like, as I thought through it. Am I one of those people? You know, like, obviously, in his mind, he had not, even though he knows what I do and he knows I'm committed to Jesus and his kingdom, had not, in his mind, connected me with those kind of born-again folk, right? It's an interesting moment we live. And probably... 
in our moments, the interchangeable word that you could use with born again for most people, now in, in our kind of day that we live, is it's connected to this word evangelical. There's almost like a cultural interpretation of this word that identifies evangelicals or those that are born again as people who are religiously motivated and active in the world. And it's just, it's interesting. Because, you know, some of us, you have no exposure to this. You hear the word born again or you heard, hear this term being used for Christians. Maybe you get this in your mind. This is a scene from Ace Ventura. Yes, I'm going to show you on Time Change Sunday a scene from Ace Ventura, okay? This is the rhino scene where Ace Ventura is stuck in a mechanical rhino and the family comes along, of course, and sees that Ace is being birthed by the rhino, which is really weird. But some people, this is probably their... The family's the best. Okay, we can stop it. We can stop it. That's good. Thank you for that. What does this mean to be born again? It's muddy, and I actually think, and not to toot our own horn, but I actually think that's why this environment right here is really important. I would actually say more than any moment in history, in the Western world, teaching like this, and I know it sounds weird because the guy up front doing the teaching is going to say that teaching is really important, but because of the chasm we're experiencing from the first century to now, and what this meant, and all the muddiness throughout the last couple of thousand years, but especially the last 50 to 75 years, this right here is actually, it's, it's quite important as our world becomes more and more post-Christian. And I think we just need these moments where we take a deep breath, and we slow down, and we look at some of these things. And you know we do this in our teaching all the time, working to correct some of the bad thinking culturally, but especially in the evangelical kind of subculture, helping correct some of the things that may be poor interpretations of certain meanings and words from a couple thousand years ago. You know what I mean? So let's do this. Let's read the text. Uh, we're following the lectionary. If you have a Bible, fire it on if it's on your phone or open it up. We're going to be in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. If you're a flannel board kid like me, um, this is a pretty well-known story. Jesus is going to encounter this guy named Nicodemus and a beautiful story, I think, for Lent and what it means for the church. So let's read it together. It says this, verse 1, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night hmm, and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother, mother's womb to be born. And maybe he's just thinking Ace Ventura right there. Maybe Nicodemus was just way ahead of his time. Who knows? Verse 5, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. 
How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Jesus said, you're Israel's teacher and do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Verse 12, but I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then the classic, your football sign, John 3, 16. For, this is the context of it, right? With this guy. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Beautiful. Now, as we talk about this, one of the things uh, we need to kind of wrestle through is who is this guy named Nicodemus? Because Jesus ultimately gives this guy an instruction to be born again, and he's somewhat confused. But when we get to the, like, to the root of who this guy is, it's actually pretty mind-blowing. Because if Jesus is saying to this particular dude in this moment that he needs to be born again, we need to realize that Nicodemus is a guy who breaks all the stereotypes, right? So we know early on, it says that he's a Pharisee, which should get the lights on our dashboard blinking. Because Pharisees, uh, this word Pharisee comes from the root word paras. Where, which means to divide or separate. If you know anything about the Pharisees, Nicodemus being a Pharisee, their chief end was to live separately from the world. These guys were Israel's teachers and leaders. And ultimately, I was reading even some people think that these guys ultimately thought that the kingdom of God was going to come to earth as it is in heaven by obeying the Torah or the law in totality without making any mistakes and if everybody could do it all at the same time, then the kingdom of God would come in totality. Isn't that interesting? And then if somebody screwed up and broke the law, you did it over again. Just to remind you, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament, so it's just like a, a rat race, a cycle of trying to live pious lives. Now, in the West, and I've, I actually, let this be a support group for me, I have made the mistake at times to paint the Pharisees negatively. And I actually changed my tune on that Certainly, they're up in Jesus' face, if you read the Gospels. Certainly, they are continuing to wrestle and talk through and argue with Jesus and his teachings. But I think, actually, these guys, this sect, this group of, known as the Pharisees, were people that had pretty good intentions, right? They wanted to live right according to the law. They wanted to live this out as best as they can. And so this is Nicodemus. And may I remind you that the, if he's a Pharisee, he's educated, he's wealthy. The Pharisees would have been men of status within the community, especially, obviously, in Israel's community. I think one, one person put it like this. One really good way of looking at what Nicodemus and his vocation was is he was basically a professor of the Bible of their day. This was his job was a teacher and leader over the Old Testament scriptures, educated, wealthy, kind of top echelon of culture. And so if that's the case, we know 
as Jesus begins to call this dude to be born again, that it has nothing to do with being more religious. Just nod your head with me. Because this dude was as religious as they came. Again, in the community, this would have been somebody that would have been revered for their piety towards Yahweh and the law. And so we gotta just remember, and I think it's John 3, John 4, and I think it's John chapter 5, if I'm not mistaken. Don't quote me. Jesus is like, through these stories, obliterating the religious ideas of the day. And Nicodemus is actually the start of this, somebody who's really prominent, and Jesus is like, yo, you need to be born of the Spirit, and this has nothing to do with your piety or how you're living this out. And I think it just should be a little eye-opening for us that God isn't after better religious acts from us. He's actually after our entire lives being born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus is there. It says he, he came at night to Jesus, which is not a mistake. All right, John is recording this idea of Jesus, uh, Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, and there's total intention behind him putting that in there. Nicodemus, I would assume, comes to Jesus at night because he's afraid to speak with him publicly. You know that Jesus is coming and he's teaching about the way of his kingdom and this whole upside down revolution that's changing the world and Jesus is gaining followers. And now Nicodemus comes to him at night on purpose, probably because as a religious leader, and remember the Jewish leaders were very much at times in bed with Rome and Caesar and there's all sorts of different relationships and power and politics and religion all mixing together not that we've ever seen that in the course of human history anybody with me and and so it's almost like this is backroom politics he comes at night um, probably coming to Jesus to see what he can get from him you scratch my back I'll scratch yours and then Jesus just lays it out for him. Verse three, no one, doesn't matter if you're top of the line in the Pharisees or you're a peasant Galilean woman on the hills near Nazareth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. No one, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. What's really interesting is that if you know anything about the Gospels, this idea of the kingdom of God is littered all throughout the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What's interesting is Jesus, or John, sorry, the writer of this particular Gospel, only uses the kingdom of God twice in the entire Gospel, and he uses it both right here. It's like we should take note that Jesus, uh, John is trying to communicate something to us. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So what the heck does born again mean, right? Is it a label for evangelicals like we see in our moment? Or is there something more beautiful and profound than that? Well, as you probably gather, the latter is probably true. This word born again in Greek is the word anothen. It's got an interesting meaning because as you know with English words now, just like ancient Greek words, words have and language has nuance and different meaning. You with me? Here's an example, I use it all the time, you've heard it. There's this word sick. Now the literal term sick obviously is a negative connotation, right? You're sick, you're not feeling well. But in my house we use this word sick because I have four young kids all the time. Do we mean sick to your stomach? No, 
It's a, it's a good connotation. When something is sick, it means that it's good. And we have to think through language because this word anothen actually has probably like a literal meaning. And the literal meaning simply means from above. Jesus, just 30 verses later, actually uses this word anothen. And instead of it being translated born again, it's translated in English in our Bibles as from above. And it's actually Jesus speaking of himself. He says, uh, where is it? He says in verse 31, the one who comes from above or anothen is above all. So this is a word that Jesus uses for himself. So the literal meaning of born again is from above, but then also the nuanced meaning that would have been known in, in this particular time is that it's again or kind of the connotation of new beginnings. Now, if you're asking me, I think when Jesus uses this word with Nicodemus, born again, I think he intends that the nuance of both of these things be understood. Make sense? I think what he's trying to communicate is this, when he says you must be born again, is that we need a new beginning, an againness, a start. We need a new beginning, but from above, from a particular source that Jesus obviously is. This is what I think Jesus is saying. This is what I think John means when he writes it down. You and I, Nicodemus in the first century, but you and I, now as we sit here thousands of years later, tired because we're lacking sleep because we lost an hour, we need a new beginning. All of us in this room need a new beginning from above. And so obviously there's confusion with Nicodemus because he has not heard this before. And all of his piety and all of his understanding of the Old Testament law, this is like he's trying to grapple in his mind what, what Jesus is actually saying here. So Jesus goes even further. Verse five, this is what he says. No one can enter the kingdom of God until they're born of water and the spirit. So Jesus says no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now, it's no one can enter the kingdom of God until they're born of water and the Spirit. What does, what does being born of water and the Spirit even mean? We need to get this if it's going to actually mean something for us in our particular moment. Now, some would say that born of water means natural birth. You know, way back, I've been there four times with my own kids. It's beautiful, but it's really not that pretty. Anybody with me? Now, come on, some of, we have nurses in here that, that this is their job. They actually help people give birth, which is amazing. I would just suggest getting an epidural. I shouldn't say that, actually. But, I, you know, we just got epidurals, and it was amazing. I would watch the baseball game. It was fantastic. It was wonderful. But you shouldn't you should get an epidural if you don't want it. But anyways, I was there four times. It's, it's, it's amazing. Some would say that this idea of being born of water is natural birth, and then being born of the Spirit is a spiritual birth. I would say that there's probably no precedent for that actually in the scripture. What I think and what we should be doing when we hear words together in the New Testament is we should ask, when are these words together in the Old Testament? Because the Old, New Testament is building off the Hebrew scriptures and there's all sorts of connections and interwebbing between these two things. There are moments in the Old Testament scriptures the Bible of Jesus' day, and which Nicodemus would have known by heart, by the way, where the word water and spirit is actually used together. Actually, one of the great prophets, the major prophets, because he's got a big one in the Old Testament, his name's Ezekiel, 
actually prophesied hundreds of years later, and listen to the language. He says, speaking of Yahweh, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now when you read that and then you read John 3, you're like, oh, there's something going on here. Hundreds of years earlier, almost a thousand years earlier, Ezekiel promises a time that is coming where there will be a new beginning. Woo, this is good stuff. Actually, Don Carson, he puts it like this. This new beginning would be characterized by a spectacular cleansing symbolized by water that washes away all impurities, and it would be symbolized by the powerful gift of the Holy Spirit that transforms and heals the hearts of people. This is what it means. When Jesus says, okay, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to be born of water and the Spirit. We need a new beginning from above. We need a new start from the source that is God himself. This is what it means. More than just a cliche or a typical, stereotypical kind of term on people, you know, those born-againers that my friend really wants nothing to do with. He would want to be around you guys, by the way. He's a great guy. But I think all the muddiness over the years, this is actually what it means. Now, feel the weight of this, okay? We're this is supposed to punch us in the gut, and we have a lot of time between the first century and now to kind of feel this. But Nicodemus, if you're reading about Nicodemus and you're a Jew in the first century, and you hear this rabbi come along, and this is basically what Jesus says to Nicodemus. You need a new life. You, you need a new... This would have been unthinkable in the moment. To tell a Pharisee that they need a new life is unimaginable. It's offensive. We should actually feel, feel it here. I know Nicodemus comes to Jesus and there's some things probably lost and it's sometimes hard to get the full story in our mind of the posture of Nicodemus' heart, but this, no matter where you come from, for Jesus to say this to an educated, wealthy dude at the top, an elder in the community, basically to say to him, you need a new life, is offensive at the core. Basically, Jesus is saying to him, that your life, no matter how many trophies are on the mantle, no matter if the family crest is over the fireplace, right? That your life has had a false start up to this point. And this is a radical claim, right? And it was radical for Nicodemus, but I also think maybe in our moment it's just as radical. In the age of authenticity and individualism that we kind of live, where we kind of, kind of get to paint and determine our own course and live our own life and be kind of self-made people, for Jesus to also look at us a couple thousand years later and say, hey, by the way, like you, you need a new life. You need to be born again from above. This can be offensive because this is the call for all of us to embrace this. Yes, it was Nicodemus in the first century, but we pick it up, and this is what Jesus is actually saying to us today. Make sense? Nod your head if you're with me. Now, this is mind-blowing, because when you actually start to read about the first century world and the Greco-Roman world in which Jesus lived and the, scriptures, the New Testament scriptures were written, it's interesting because the idea of being born again 
wasn't totally foreign to the Greco-Roman world. There's this word, palagenesia. Palagenesia, that was a common phrase in the first century. They would, uh, people would use it all the time in the Gre- Greco world. And this word basically, you can break it down into two. Palin means again, and then obviously you guys know from Genesis, it means beginning or birth, to be born again. So palagenesia, this Greco-Roman term, literally meant new birth, renewal, recreation. And it was actually a term, born again, was actually in their mindset, an idea amongst the religious, uh, sorry, the Greco-Roman philosophers and Stoics. Now, there's no test here, all right, no test at the end, but it's interesting when you look at this, because in the Greco-Roman world, they understood that history was endless. The philosophers, like Plato and so on, looked, and they taught this to people, that history was endless. It was almost like it was uh, cyclical. Greek philosophy propagated oftentimes this idea that you have humanity, there would be an event that would happen, and during that catastrophic event, there would be a purge, and then there would be palagenesia, this idea of rebirth, there would be a, a renewal. So in the minds and hearts of people, a lot of people, especially in Greco-Roman philosophy, they thought, okay, you have humanity, there's going to be an event, it could go bad, maybe it's like coronavirus, you know, thousands of years later or whatever. All right, too soon, are we too soon? We we will instruct you at communion time to be careful, okay? Um, But they had this idea of just this catastrophic thing coming and messing and then there would be a renewal and then it would happen again and it was cyclical and cyclical. So much so that this was in their minds and hearts as, as people. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus takes this word, palagenesia, and he actually uses it. The scriptures actually use this word. Listen how Jesus uses this word. He says it in Matthew 19. He, it says, he said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, don't worry about the thrones and the tribes and all that. Right now, the thing to focus on is Jesus says, at the palagonesia, at the renewal of all things, I'm going to come and I'm going to renew all things. And so to Jesus, this idea in the Greco world, he borrows this word. He almost like steals it. And instead of explaining it as an endless cycle of birth and rebirth, Jesus says that when I come at the second coming, when I come to renew all things, it's going to be a one-time event, not this cyclical idea. Ultimately, Jesus believes that when he returns, it's going to be a moment of renewal, of new birth, of recreation, that the idea that Jesus gives is that at the end of this age, that the creation, the whole cosmos will be reborn, palagonesia. So instead of it being cyclical, Jesus is like, yo, when I return, that this event is going to change the course of human history, there will be a rebirth. And just to let you know, Like, I'm bought into this. I believe that amongst all the sin and death and pain and everything that we see around us, the king is returning and the entire cosmos are going to be reborn. How cool is that? This is actually the Christian hope. This is what we lean into. And so this story is emoticon 
fire, emoji fire, right? Like this is what we sit on the edge of our seats waiting for. We wait for the recreation. We wait to be born again. There's part of us where we're waiting for the renewal of all things. But this word palagonesia is also not just used for this event that's coming. Paul actually picks it up in his language. Listen to what he says in Titus 3. He says this, Jesus saved us not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us, and listen, through the washing of rebirth, palagonesia, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So it's not just the Palagonesi is coming in when Jesus ushers his kingdom in in totality and when he returns, but Paul is geeked up on the, the idea that this is actually something we, you and I as humans, under the rule and reign of God, have this rebirth. We are to be born again by the washing of the Holy Spirit. And so one of the things you catch is that the kingdom of the future is bursting forth in the present because what's happening all around us, if you've made a decision to follow Jesus as Lord and, Lord as, and Lord and King, is we're living in the present what will happen in the future. Make sense? The rebirth, many of you guys, have gone into the water of baptism and you have come out as the sign and the symbol of Jesus' work in you, the rebirth, the new life. It's more than just a phrase or a term over us. This is our life experience and then we'll experience it as well when Jesus comes, when the entire creation is born again. Clark Pinnock, he's an old uh, theologian, actually was a theologian at the school I studied at. He said this, the church filled with the Spirit is the agent of God's kingdom and sacrament for the world. God touches the world when the church speaks the truth, proclaiming good news, proclaiming Jesus' actions, identified with pain, builds communities, shares, and forgives. So the idea of being born again is that you and I, if you've been born of the Spirit, are participators in the full life of the kingdom of God. And we can't see, nor can we enter the kingdom without having this kind of experience of being born by the Spirit. We all know, you can go back to that day, however short or long ago it was, when you were born in physical form. But all of us, the call is, is to be born of the Spirit, to surrender, to give our lives. And part of that then leads us to being participants in the kingdom of God. We need a new beginning from above. It's what our city needs. It's what the world around us needs. It's what you and I need if you haven't experienced that new beginning. We need a new beginning from above. And I don't know about you, but as we, you know, in a second, we're going to come to the table. But it's just interesting uh, in and through this, you know, kind of what death does, you know, some of you guys have experienced death in different ways in your family and your life and your sphere and world. I just find it interesting that, and not to sound like tugging at the heartstrings and trying to be manipulative, but I do think death ultimately in the end puts things into perspective. I wonder what would happen if we all treated each other like we were dying because I think death does something. You know, this week we had a friend, a family friend, who um, four-year-old daughter just went for a nap and never woke up, you know? And I just think about the perspective that that brings, such a young, beautiful girl, 
And I think for some of us in this room, um, we could be living for the moment now, here in the moment now. And for me, that's a leveling thing because it just puts into perspective the call for Jesus. I think a lot of people a lot of times think they just have like a ton of time just to do what they want and to live the life that they want. But death kind of seems to be that thing that just kind of levels the ground for us. Just don't know. And I just want to remind us that Jesus is inviting you and me to be born of the Spirit, to lay our lives down, to follow him with everything. Now, here's the thing. In our context, I'm not sure that being over-religious is our problem, right? I don't think anybody here in our community is a professor of the Bible, one, or, you know, the you know, cultural religious elite in this place. I actually think it's the opposite for us. But I'd also caution us from taking pride, you know, in our moment of our irreligiousness. You know, you have Nicodemus here, who's the religious dude. I think our, sometimes our problem, even I can take pride in, you know, we're that church that's not really religious, you know. We're cool because we wear blue jeans. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. You can bring your coffee to church. We're awesome. Yeah, right? Did I just say blue jeans? I sound like my dad. So our problem may not be, you know, trying to be like ultra-religious, but I, I think of my own self. Sometimes I take pride in the other way, and I still think Jesus would confront that and say to me and you, listen, you can't see the kingdom. You can't experience it unless you're born of the Spirit. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you've had that new beginning, amazing. Walk in the way of Jesus. But I do think maybe for some of us, not to get all like hardcore, but maybe for some of us, we, act, we think we are, but we're really not. We haven't laid our lives down for the king of the universe. And maybe this could be a moment in light of what Jesus is calling Nicodemus to do here, where we could, whether it's a fresh kind of doing this again, say, Jesus, I lay my life down. Or for some of you, maybe that's just a moment here where you know, even as you read Jesus' encounter here, that there's, it's tugging at your heart and your life to surrender your life. I would call you to do that. You don't know how much time you have in this age before Jesus comes. And I would just encourage us to step into this.